number the, the amount of Egyptians, that uh, natural born Egyptians, and so he was going to murder all of the children of the nation of Israel, all of the male children, so they could not uh, overwhelm the Egyptians in force. And uh, Moses' mother decides she doesn't want her baby to be killed, so she puts him in a basket and floats him down the Nile River. Which I have to be honest, doesn't seem like a great plan. Like, if you don't want your baby to die, let's put him in a reed basket, put him on a river that is infested with crocodiles, and float him off. It doesn't seem like a great plan. However, all things work for the good of God and those who are called according to his purpose. And so Moses was actually drawn out of the river by Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Moses actually means to be drawn out, which is where we get his name. Uh, and so Moses is then raised in Pharaoh's household. He's uh, taught how to read, how to write. Uh, he is uh, raised actually by his mother. Pharaoh's daughter says, well, I haven't given birth, so I need someone who can look after this kid. So she gets a midwife, uh, a nursing mother from the uh, native Hebrew population. Turns out she actually stands Moses' biological mother. So Moses' mother ends up raising him in Pharaoh's household as Pharaoh's uh, son. And Moses then moves uh, up in the ranks uh, in positions of power and authority, second only to uh, his older brother who would go on to become Pharaoh. And so Moses is put into a place of power and influence. And then what we see when Moses gets to a certain age, he actually strikes an Egyptian out of anger and kills him and then bleeds into the wilderness where he spends 40 years tending sheep. If you ever think God has put you in a place for a long time, imagine spending 40 years in a desert with sheep for company. I'm just saying it could get a little repetitive. I like new challenges, right? I like new things. I like the next big thing. I like moving on. Moses uh, sets for 40 years in this wilderness tending sheep. And he does it well until one day he sees what? burning bush. And Moses, seeing a burning bush, doesn't do what every other normal person would do, freak out and run the opposite direction. He says, hmm, a burning bush, I'm going to move forward and actually see what this is about. He has this encounter with God where God tells him to remove the sandals from his feet for the place he's standing is holy ground. And he communicates with God and God says, I'm going to send you back to Egypt and I'm going to get you to, to be the person who frees my people from slavery. I'm going to take them out of Egypt. And of course, because Moses is human, he argues with God because isn't that what we do? God comes and taps you on the shoulder, shoulder, not soldier, shoulder, and says, I'm going to make you a soldier for me. I worked it in, thought it was a mistake. He taps you on, on, the, on the shoulder and says, I've got something for you. Natural, a sort of natural in-gut feeling is to say, you know what, I need to, I need to slow down God. So I need to know the A's, the B's, the C's. I need to know how this plan is working out. I need to know uh, if my 401k is going to be good. Am I going to get dental coverage? Like, I need to know what's going on. And God often, often does not tell us how it's going to go. He says, no, trust me. And if we're being honest, that's a little bit annoying. Because we want to know how it's going to end. But God says to Moses, no, trust me. And Moses says, I can't talk good. I stutter. I'm not good at public speaking. I can't stand up and read scripture in front of the congregation. I'm not good at this. I'm going to 
tell you what, God, instead, instead of me reading public scripture, I'm going to let my, uh, my family member do it for me. Choose Aaron. He's, he's, he's older than me by a couple of years. All right, I have to tell you, I just called Jen out because she was supposed to read scripture, but she got nervous, so instead she gave it to Lenore to do for her. So all that was just straight for her. Hey, God works things into scripture. I'm just saying. We'll get there. We'll get there. And so Aaron actually gets blessed with this message of God, and then something really interesting happens uh, when, when God sends Moses and Aaron into the presence of Pharaoh, uh, God actually sets up an analogy. This is one of the only places in Scripture that this occurs. He says, I'm going to make Moses like God to Pharaoh. I'm going to put the awe that people have for my name into Moses so he doesn't even really have to talk or do anything. He just has to show up and people are going to start getting nervous and see my power. And in fact, Aaron is going to be the one that people call a prophet. And so in this story, Moses gets a lot of this like a lot of this credit in the story, but it's actually his brother Aaron who's who's doing what God has asked them to do. And Moses just sort of shows up and stands there as this uh, messianic figure. And we'll, we'll get to that just a little bit later on in this sermon, is that Moses is acting, or rather is being viewed like God in the eyes of Pharaoh. So Moses and Aaron are sent as messengers of the Lord to Pharaoh to instruct him to let the children of Israel go so they may serve the Lord. Now, this is really important. It wasn't just to get them out of slavery. It wasn't just to free them from their circumstances. It was so that they could serve the Lord. And too often what you and I do as Christians is we we have God's will in our life and we're going to pursue it because it's going to benefit us or it's going to be something that we want to do or it's something that we desire, but what you need to know from the scripture is that you are called to do stuff to serve the Lord, and often the desires of your heart come about because of your obedience to service, not the other way around. Obedience to the service of the Lord is the primary uh, focus of all Christians, and then everything else flows out of that. And so Moses and Aaron are sent as messengers of the Lord so that they can say to Pharaoh, yo, let my people go. Now, if you're familiar with the Charlton Heston movie, it's my favorite. It's the Ten Commandments, let my people go. He has a very smooth voice. Very good. If you're a little younger, you are familiar with the animated DreamWorks Prince of Egypt, right? Um, Martin Short singing the song about snakes. It's, it's quite interesting. Um, and so... What we're we're looking at is then Pharaoh responding to Moses saying this, uh, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. So he says, I I don't know who you are. I don't know what God you're serving. Why would I obey a God that I don't even know uh, who he is? Uh, And so... so, uh, they, They had this showdown with the magicians of Egypt. And here we find another little tidbit. A lot of the times when we look at the Bible, we think, yeah, God is the one that shows up and has this divine power and divine miracles and he can do this stuff. But here we see that there are other people in this land, in this nation, who can perform magic in some way, shape, or form. We don't really have many details about this. Even historically, we don't have many details of this, but we know that the magicians step up, they throw their uh, rods onto the ground, and they turn them into snakes, and then Aaron says, well, anything you can do, I can do better. So he throws his rod on the ground, it becomes a snake, and then Aaron's rod swallows the other magician's 
snakes, and there is a, uh, I think, a sermon just in that alone, saying that God's power is greater than any other power. Soon, however, Pharaoh will find out who God is and why he should obey his voice. He will understand his power over all other Egyptian gods and goddesses. And this is going to be the, the focus. We're going to look at the, uh, the ten plagues of Egypt and how they relate to, to teaching Pharaoh a lesson. Now, oftentimes when you think of uh, these ten plagues, we think of this really dramatized version. We think of the movies that we've seen. So I want you just for a moment to try and divorce in your mind the movies that you've seen and try and experience these plagues fresh, maybe even from the eyes of uh, the Egyptian people and how they would look at it. And so what we've seen is Pharaoh coming out and saying, I don't know who you are, and I don't know who the God is that you serve. And what the, the subtext of that is, is that he knows the gods that he serves. He knows uh, his religious stuff. He doesn't know who this is, uh, who, who this, this guy is. And so what we're going to look at is that these ten Egyptian plagues not only demonstrate the power of God, uh, to Moses, the children of Israel, the Egyptians, and Pharaoh, but they were such a magnitude that they would be remembered for all generations throughout the entire world. Like I said, there are movies made about this. Just recently, there was a uh, another movie made called Gods and Kings. I never saw it because it looked really terrible with too much CGI. But even today, people are still bringing this up in popular culture, making movies about this, and, and, and uh, well, singing songs about it. That this story testified, uh, as both the Old Testament and New Testament like, that salvation from beginning to end is only accomplished through Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher or perfecter of our faith. Uh, we actually read that in the book of Hebrews. And so in this story of redemption, this story has to do with salvation, that God is greater than anything else. And before we, we get going... Yeah, the sermon hasn't started yet. Before we get going here, the number 10 is significant in the Bible. It is actually the, the uh, represents the fullness of quantity. It means that this is plenty, this is enough, this is God-given. We don't need any more, which is why there are 10 commandments. So, here's what we're going to look at. So, first, the, uh, the first... Uh, plague of Egypt was directed at a guy called Hapi, H-A-P-I. He was the Egyptian god of the Nile. He had power of the Nile, and the Egyptians prayed to him that the inundation of the Nile, uh, what would happen is the Nile would flood and would bring up this fertile soil from the bottom of the Nile, and it would push it out onto the sides, and the, the, the sides of the Nile River would get rich with this fertile soil, and they believed that this guy, Hapi, was the, the God who controlled that. So if we prayed to him, if we gave him offerings, then he would bless us with this fertility. And the Nile was this source of life. And the very first plague that was given to the Egyptians from God was that it turned this water into blood. And saying, this thing that you think is your life source is no longer your life source. Second plague, there was a God called Hegek, Egyptian goddess of fertility, water, and renewal. And the second plague was, uh, that was extended upon the Egyptians was that of frogs. And so uh, it, this God of renewal was sh uh, shown up that these frogs swarmed out of the water and, and, and took over, and they were in houses. 
I'm not French, so I'm not really fond of frogs. Like I'm sure if this happened in frogs, people would be, you know, in, 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 in France, people would be like, ooh, entree, sir, right? That's not really the mental picture that we're going for here. What we're going for here is a plague, an infestation, that, that when you're walking down the street, you can't help but step on a frog. It gets underfoot almost like cats. You, you, know, you know this with cats? Like when you walk, especially if you're carrying something, you take a step, it's, the cat is going to be underneath you. It's one of Murphy's laws. That when you take a step, there will be a cat underneath you. Anyway, moving on, because apparently that joke's not landing. Uh, and the third, third plate, there's this Egyptian god called Geb. He is the god of the earth. And at the command of the Lord to Moses, Aaron was told to stretch forth his rod and smite the dust of the earth. For when he did, the dust became lice throughout all the land of both people and beasts. And so what Moses is doing, what God is doing through Moses and Aaron is saying they worship this god of the earth and they think that he controls the way the earth moves and the way the earth shakes. I'm going to take control from that God and I'm going to turn the dust of the earth into creatures. This is not the only time that, that God turns dust into something good or something different. Because if you remember through the book of Genesis when we're talking about the story of creation, he took the dust of the earth and he turned it into a living being. Oh, hey, oh, I actually wrote that down. True. This is a reminder of mortality in the same today. I'm not even going to pronounce that name. It was the Egyptian god of creation, movement of the sun, and rebirth. And with the fourth Egyptian plague, which consisted of flies beginning the great miracle of separation and differentiation. Now, this is really important. Uh, beforehand, all of these plagues are listed as affecting everyone. Now what God is doing is drawing a difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And from here on out, most of the plagues are going to affect only the Egyptians. And God is going to spare his people from this suffering. This in itself is a stark illustration that God will protect his people, that God will take his people in hand and continue them in safety while other people will suffer. That you and I as Christians don't need to fear the same thing that the rest of the world fears because God has it handled. But again, Pharaoh hardens his heart. This is really interesting. Um, Five times it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and five times it says that Pharaoh's heart hardens. And I think this is God messing around because he knew that there were going to be Calvinists and Arminians later on. And so five times he says, no, it's going to be my will that makes this happen, and the other five times he says, no, it's free will that's going to make this happen. That's a theological nerd joke. Some of you might get it later, but it's fine. <sighs> Jokes aren't mine in this one. Flies. We're on the flies, right? You guys are killing me. I thought that joke was going to land. Can I get a sympathy <laughs> There we go. Here we go. So moving on. Uh, the next next god that we're looking at is Hathor, the Egyptian goddess of love and protection. And Moses once again demanded of Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me, revealing also the next Egyptian plague to occur on the condition of continued disobedience to the request this plague was given with advanced warning, allowing a period of repentance to occur, which goes unheeded. Here's another thing that's really important. God always gives a period of repentance. Uh, often, it looks like God just smites people down, but really there is a period of time 
that uh, is called repentance. And so what we talked about a little bit earlier is that uh, Joseph uh, settled down in Egypt and the Israelites spent a good portion of time, some 400 years, in captivity. And that uh, period of time is important because we actually back up in the narrative and we look at some of the promises that are given to Abraham. God says to Abraham, I'm going to give to you the land of Canaan. And Abraham says but that that period, that, that area is already got a bunch of people living in there and God says, I'm going to deliver it unto you. But it's not going to happen in your lifetime. God actually says to Abraham, it's going to take a, a period of 400 years before you can enter that land so that they might have a time to repent. Now often when we when we look further on in the story, and we look at the story of Joshua entering the land of Canaan and God giving all of these these commands, I want you to kill every man, woman, child, donkey, and goat. He says that in the book of Joshua. We often think, man, that seems a little drastic. Why would God command that all these people be killed? What happens is that God over here gave them 400 years to repent. And for 400 years, they didn't repent. They kept in their sin. They kept in their wicked ways. And so God then finally said, no, this is the time of judgment. You've had your chance. And so what we see is that God always gives a period of repentance. Tomorrow, the hand of the Lord will be felt upon all the cattle and livestock of only the Egyptians as a grievous morion. I got that from the King James. It was fantastic. This means that disease and pestilence would fall upon their livestock with so severe consequences to cause them to die. And so this goddess who is in charge of protection is shown up by our God to be a false god that can't protect the Egyptian livestock from the god of the Israelites. It created a huge economic disaster in areas of food, transportation, military supplies, farming, and economic goods that were produced by this livestock. A lot of their economic and uh, and sort of uh, monetary power and their military might was based on their livestock, and that was taken away in a day. Still, Pharaoh's heart remained hard, and he would not listen to the Lord, but remained faithful to the Egyptian gods and goddesses. But you have to start wondering if Pharaoh was starting to think maybe he backed the wrong team. Like at this point, like I, I'm not sure how you are and how stubborn you are. I'm pretty stubborn, but even me at this point thinking like, man, I just had five straight losses to the, the one team. Maybe, maybe it's time I should be giving this up. Maybe it's time. But he doesn't. He remains faithful to the gods and goddesses of Egypt. The next goddess is the goddess Isis, the goddess of there's a buzz when I stand right there. I'm not even joking. All right, here we go. Uh, Isis, goddess of what was that? Medicine and peace. Being instructed by the Lord, Moses took ashes from the furnace of affliction and threw them into the air as the dust from the ashes blew all over Egypt. It settled on man and beast alike in the form of. Boils and sores. Really doesn't Pharaoh at this point be like, just take them and go. Like, come on. Like, boils and sores. And so this goddess of medicine is unable to prevent their people from breaking out in boils and sores. And as with the previous two, throughout the remaining Egyptian plagues, the division is drawn between the Egyptians and the children of Israel as God gives protection to his covenant people. 
The severity of judgment of God has now become personal as it is actually felt by the people themselves. And so up until this point, it had been on cattle. It had been on other things. It had been on the rivers and the frogs and then the flies. But now this is me actually getting sick. And so the, the, this uh, judgment is coming at a personal level through the Egyptians. And you begin to wonder if the Egyptian people are starting to look at Pharaoh and be like, can you let them go? I've got boils on places where I don't like. My nose, look, it's a giant boil right on the end. Get rid of it, please. Let them go. Just get them out. Here's what's, what's also interesting about this. Cleanliness uh, was paramount to the Egyptian religion. Being clean meant that you were physically healthy. The magicians, who up until this point have been seen out throughout the entire narrative, are unable to perform ceremonial rituals to their Egyptian gods and goddesses. So at this point, finally, uh, even the magicians are unable to keep up with the miracles of God. And what's really interesting is from this point, the magicians disappear completely from the story. They're not seen in the story again. They are ceremoniously unable to offer anything to their gods and goddesses. It's a great, I'll just tell the sentence on it. This is the contrast shown between Moses and Aaron, who are the only ones left standing in front of Pharaoh. You have to imagine now that Pharaoh had this massive court, he had a massive throne, and he had always had nobles, he had magicians, he had astrologers and wise men around him, and he had this full court. But now the contrast is there is now Pharaoh sitting on his throne and only Moses and Aaron in his presence, no one else. Everyone else has dropped away. But we continue. Nut. Which is a good name for a goddess, if ever there was one. I mean, she's a little nuts, but let's go. She's the goddess of the sky. And to show that God has power over this Egyptian goddess, he causes the sky to give up and rain down uh, hail that was so big that it would turn to fire as it hit the ground. Showing Pharaoh that there is none like him on the earth. Allowing those who are willing to hear his word and do his commandments to be saved. He takes the sky and says, no, this is mine. Then Seth uh, is the Egyptian god of storms and disorder. And in the eighth plague issued by the Lord, it had a greater purpose than the others. It was to be felt so that Pharaoh would tell even his sons and his sons' sons the mighty things of the Lord. Thus teaching even future generations of the power of the strong hand of God over all other Egyptian gods and goddesses. Uh, and so uh, in this particular plague, this uh, second wave of destruction happens, this hail that falls from the sky, this natural disaster, and it takes out the rest of the crops. It takes out the rest of the stuffs. Uh, it, it, it takes out um, swarms of locusts are unleashed from the sky. Uh, so we've had we've got hail, we've got fire in them, and then now we've got locusts being unleashed from the earth, these natural disasters taking over, and they wonder, uh, by hitting them in the food supply, rather, the Lord displayed the possibility of imminent death if a change of heart does not occur. Again, this is a warning sign to the Egyptian people saying, hey, you could starve to death if you don't listen to me. You could die if you don't listen to me. And again and again and again it says that Pharaoh's heart hardens. Ra, the sun god. This guy's a big one. If you ever read up on him. 
he was other what do you mean? He was one of the most, if not the most worshipped God in Egyptian mythology. Ra is the most powerful. Uh, they believe that it was his chariot that drew the sun across the sky during the day. And so God darkens the sky. He says, you put faith in this guy, let me take away his entire power. And he darkens the sky. Unannounced as a prelude to the future fate to be felt by the Egyptian Empire when the message of the Lord is repeated. And they still turn to their own Egyptian God and goddesses. Three days. And that's I keep telling you that there are no places in the Bible and words and, and, and time periods keep coming up repetitively. Three days of darkness is not a throwaway line. That the world was in darkness for three days, just as later on the world would be in darkness for three days when the light of the world was in between. Three days of palatable darkness that was so immense it physically felt, covered the lands of Egypt. The sun being the most worshipped god in Egypt, other than Pharaoh himself, gave no light. The Lord showed that he had control over the sun as a witness. The God of Israel had ultimate power over life and death. If there's no sun, no crops grow. If no crops grow, you can't eat and you can't feed your animals. And if you can't feed your animals, they die and you die. So you get this absolute total devastation that God is landing. <coughs> And I messed up my slide. And so that's okay. But this bottom line. Pharaoh is the ultimate power of Egypt, and so he was represented in the last plague. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was worshipped by the Egyptians because he was considered to be the greatest Egyptian god of all. It was believed that he was actually the son of Ra himself, manifest in the flesh. And so while they couldn't talk to the other gods, they couldn't interact with the other gods, they believed that uh, Pharaoh himself was the incarnate son of their most powerful God, and they could see him in the flesh. And so after the plague of darkness fell throughout the land, was lifted, Pharaoh resumed his position of bargaining with the Lord, offered Moses a deal, and he went back on his deal. And eventually what happened is this last plague, um, blah, 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 whatever, um, I'm off my slides, I don't know where I'm going, so I need to finish this up. And so this last plague was the was the death of the last, uh, sorry, the firstborn sons of all of the Egyptians. And so if you believe your Pharaoh was a god and he has a son that dies, clearly he is not a god. And so what happens is a complete dismantling in this story of the religion of the people of Egypt. On every single level, they were their entire worldview, philosophies, and religious beliefs were torn down stone by stone, brick by brick, to show that each one of them was hollow and worthless, and that the only God who has power is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. The God that we, you and I, serve. And the, the point of all of this is one simple line. There is nothing that you and I worship that is more powerful than God. There is nothing that you and I can possibly worship, possibly have as important in our lives that is more powerful or more worthy than God. Each one of us uh, raises up idols in our own life. For some of them, it's family. For some of them, it's work. For some people, it's sports. I don't know what idols are in your life. 
but everyone has them in some way, shape, or form. And what we do is we they become idols when they become more important than the God that we worship. When they become more important than God, they become idols. And they become false gods. And so what God says again and again through Scripture, and especially in this story, is that there is nothing that you can possibly worship that is greater or more powerful than God. And listen, there is nothing that you can worship that is better than God. He is the best thing for us to worship. His uh, plans for our lives. Uh, he went over to Moses and Aaron. He said that, that when you get free from Egypt, you're going to plunder the nation of Egypt. You're going to exit there with wealth and power and accumulated stuff that you, you can't even comprehend. And when that, that moment comes to pass, they do. They leave Egypt. Uh, some estimates are between 500,000 to 2 million Israelites will leave the nation of Egypt with uh, gold, with jewels, with donkeys and goats and animals, and an entire nation is going to move out of another nation, plundering the nation of Egypt. And so God says, if you stick with me, there are blessings in your future. Now, I'm not saying that if you follow God, you're going to get yourself a goat. Sorry. I don't know what the blessings are. They might not be riches in that particular way. They could be richnesses of relationships. They could be uh, a richness of knowing that you had a part in someone else's salvation because you followed the words of God and you, you told someone about Jesus. I don't know what it is. But what I want you to know just from our last moments here together is simply this. There is nothing that you worship that is more powerful than God. There is nothing that we worship that is better than God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the time you've given us to come into your presence and to worship you. I pray, Lord God, that you be with each one of us uh, as we go from this place that you Help us to understand that there is nothing more powerful or better than you to worship. Lord, we thank you that throughout history, people have obeyed you and followed you. We love you, Lord. We do all pray today. We pray this in your son's precious name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.